The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, starting in verse 10. Um, in your pew Bible, it is on page 895, if you'd like to look there. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take one of these as a gift from Park. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it is, oops, sorry, sorry. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus, Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park. My name is Neil. I serve on the pastoral team here. Um, and we are in our second week of our First Corinthians series. Um, it will be through much of the spring and then pick back up in the fall as well after we do Christ in the Psalms this summer. Um, it's, it's good for us to remember that this book of the Bible is a letter written by a pastor to a local church that he planted, and he has deep affection for them. We heard so much of that last week of just... Paul reminding them who they are in Christ Jesus. You, you are sanctified and set apart. You're made holy. You're, you're beloved. You feel his love for this local community of believers. And we're, we're turning now um, in, in verse 10 to where he's, he's saying, but we have some things to chat about. Foundation of love, foundation of grace. God's work is real, but we have some, we have some stuff to chat about because there are things going on in your community that they're not consistent with your call. They're not consistent with who Jesus is. And we've, we've got to talk through that. And work through it. Um, as we're, we're doing the, the First Corinthians series, if y'all, any of you would like to go a little bit further into um, just kind of the study of the word and understanding as we, you know, obviously we got Sundays, maybe your gospel community is going through it as well. Uh, but we have a couple of resources up on our shelf. Um, one is a very concise commentary by Andrew Wilson. So it's all, you know, whole First Corinthians commentaries here. It's very accessible. He's got some questions in there. Maybe you're going through that as a gospel community. Uh, but then he also has a corresponding study guide that will take you a little bit more deeply into the text, ask different questions, um, and guide you through it as well. So, you know, we price these to, to get in the hands of, of people for whom they're helpful. So, we're, you know, it's, it's severely discounted from what you can get online. Um, so grab those at the bookshelf if you would, if you would like. Uh, but now let me pray for us, ask for God's help, um, and we'll, we'll get into the text together. Father, thank you for your, your unfading love. I thank you that you're, you're a God who pursues and pursues and pursues. And no matter where we're, we're coming from right now, you know the particular stories that we carry. You, you know the joys and the delights that we have, that we feel so evidently. You know the, the sorrows and the areas of pain, the seasons that we're in. You know everything in between. You know where we feel kind of unfeeling and, and dull toward you where we just long for our hearts to be enlivened and to be awakened to you afresh. You know the questions that each of us is wrestling with. And so we ask that, that you would do uh, what only you can do, uh, which is to, to speak in such a way that we, we hear the voice of our Father, that, that we know more of who you are, we understand more of who we are in you, 
that you would make dead hearts alive, that you'd make sleepy hearts awake toward you, that that we we would find hope in the risen Lord, the crucified and risen Lord who brings his people together to testify to how great our God is. Will you work? Now, we we know you're here, but we confess our need for you to to speak and to work on our behalf, uh, to glorify the Son and, and to build up your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 2009. I had just graduated college. It was, it was now summer. I was 22 years old. And I was, I was about to, to step into one of the most disillusioning seasons of my life as it relates to church. Uh, coming to the summer, I'm back living in my parents' house. My wife and I were not quite engaged. We're, we're moving in that direction, but finding some different jobs to work and whatever else. And three different churches that... Um, had some issues that summer, all of which had, we had deep connection with as a family. Church number one. Uh, I'd grown up in this church from age zero to nine. It's a church that I came to faith in Jesus in, in a Sunday school class. Uh, it was, my dad had served as an elder. My parents were deeply invested. We still had a lot of family friends years after in this church community. And the, the senior pastor, the planting pastor, um, phenomenal ministry for many decades, but hit the point where it was time for the transition. And he didn't really want to transition. <laughs> the, the conversation with the elders and everybody else, like, hey, it's time to move on. And he wasn't quite sure, but there was kind of a, a faction growing that was built around more his personality. And he knew it was time to go, but also didn't know it was time to go. And it, like, not really sure. And they had another pastor kind of coming up in the ranks and could have been a smooth transition. And as it turned out, it split the church in two. And by the end of the year, that pastor was pastoring in a different church less than two miles away. And about half that original church went with them. Church number two. Uh, this is a church where my uh, aunt and uncle were and my cousins. Uh, it's where I went to youth group for much of high school. Uh, my uncle was an elder there. Uh, also just like another fruitful church in our community. Um, and the, the pastor had been there for decades, faithfully preaching the gospel, seeing people come to faith. Um, wonderful ministry in that community. It was also time for him to start moving on. He, he had indicated that. He was actually uh, investing in a younger pastor to come up and to, to replace him. But when it, when it came right down to it, it was just too tough. And in listening to, you know, kind of group of people that were kind of built more around a personality than the gospel of Jesus. And similar to the other church within the calendar year, he had planted a church less than two miles away and took about a third of the people with him. Church number three. This is the church that I went to during high school. My dad was currently an elder. I I stepped back into post-college, deeply involved in. I'd been mentored by the pastor and kind of discerning a call, what's the future? And there was a younger pastor that was kind of emerging within the church and had a Sunday school class that was was just going really well. Like people were were seeing God's word in fresh ways. They were growing and maturing and new relationships were being formed. And and he, he was somebody who wanted to be invested in and sent out as a new church planner, still in partnership with this original church. Well, the senior pastor seemed to feel threatened by this, and it turned into the back and forth and the debates in the elder conversation in the room and the back and, you know, then it turned into manipulation and threats of planning a church and kind of going elsewhere and taking people with them, and within a year and a half, it's precisely what he did, and another church was planted less than two miles away. I, I share this with such vivid detail because I imagine many of us have similar experiences in the church. And it can be disillusioning. It can be confusing. When you look up to somebody and say, but I've, I've, I've heard the gospel proclaimed over and over, this unifying message, the cross of Jesus that is, is meant to set other things aside and bring us together around the person and the work of Jesus as one new spiritual family. And now we have different divisions and factions and personalities that are driving different groups and we're, we're splitting apart. How is this consistent? And I remember myself trying to figure out, like, what, what, what's next for me? I was kind of discerning a call in different directions, and is, you know, is pastoral ministry a part of it? And it doesn't need to be this way. Is, it, is this gospel message just a sham, and this is proof positive? That these, church, these churches, these leaders, the, these groups of people, they, they can't kind of get it together because actually the message they're proclaiming is not effective. It's not powerful. It's not wisdom from God. It's not what can actually unify us. Or, or, is the cross of Christ the very means by which we are brought to God and one another? But somewhere along the way, the temptation is so real 
for us to practically reject that message and start walking a different path. I determined through texts like these and others that that is exactly the case, that the cross of Jesus is the very wisdom and power of God that is an affront to, to how, how easily we can absorb the values of the broader culture and society around us. They sneak into the church. We develop different kind of followings and cults around personalities. And all the while, Jesus stands as the, the crucified and risen Lord and saying, come to me and find rest. Come to me and find unity. Come to me and cease trying to define yourself and get worth for yourself through what you can achieve and what you can do. And that is what Paul is writing into in this portion of the letter. So you close your Bibles, encourage you to open it back up. Uh, we'll walk through this text together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, starting verse 10. And I wanna I want do this, uh, the three sections I wanna do around three different questions. And the first one is this. Are you drawn to a personality or to the person of Christ? You're more drawn to a personality or a style or an approach or kind of a feel from something or from Christ himself. Look with me in verse 10. I appeal to you. So here Paul's making the shift. He, he's done the greetings on the front end. He has spoken of his love and his affection for the people of God in Corinth. And now he's turning. I appeal to you. I, I plead with you. I ask. I beseech you. Brothers or brothers and sisters. You know, the word is for brothers, but all, all the, the whole community of faith Women and men are in view here. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by who Jesus is, his character, his work, the fact that he reigns in your lives, the fact that he laid down his life and death could not hold him and he raised again the people that he has created here in Corinth, by that name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to you that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, Paul's not saying here, I want uniformity. I want you all, like any distinctions you have, set them aside, forget about them, and don't care about them because I want everyone just to, to think the same and talk the same and be the same. And It's not what he's after. And we'll see that really throughout much of this letter, he, the call is to acknowledge the differences within the community of faith. Centered around Jesus, one confession, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as we come before him, we can learn to set the preferences aside. We can learn to set the other things that kind of mark us in different ways and say, but I can move toward the other and honor them and recognize them and acknowledge them and, and pursue unity with them because these other aspects are not the most defining about us. Jesus is. His work on the cross is. It's not about who we follow and who we listen to and how we kind of size up compared to other people, but it's the fact that Christ has come and redeemed a people for himself in a unified way. So Paul's saying, relativize your differences for the sake of a genuine Christ-centered unity. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Chloe is likely a, a businesswoman um, who does a fair amount of travel and has a number of employees that would do travel for her. Um, maybe stationed in Corinth. I mean, she's well-known in that community, uh, but probably was, had sent employees to do business in Ephesus where Paul was, and they have a little conversation. You're kind of checking in, and so Paul's like, hey, y'all know Chloe. Y'all respect Chloe. Um, she's a prominent member in your, in your community, in your church, and her people, her employees kind of filled me in on what's going on in the church right now. So it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. A little backdrop on the culture in Corinth, that it's not too dissimilar from just about any other culture. But they, particularly in Corinth, they, they would have um, a, a, a draw to find different intellectuals or sophists or, or philosophers or thinkers, people who can communicate well and think well and kind of gain respect because of that, get status because of it, to align themselves with that individual to kind of be part of their tribe. Like that's our people. That's what makes us who we are. We're, we're with them. And that way of thinking had, had so seeped into the church that now they're kind of carving up the people of God based upon their favorite preacher or pastor or leader or whatever else. So you can imagine how this would play out. You know, you've got the I follow Paul group. Paul, he's like, 
OG. Right? It's like, hey, planted the church. Like it, we were in the basement Bible study with Paul. I mean, like we, you know, he comes in, gospel had not been preached in this community, and the first band of disciples in that city come together. And the, the church is born. As you can imagine, people are like, yeah, but I'm connected to like the guy that started the whole thing here in Corinth. And also that, so much of Paul's ministry and emphasis was on the grace of God and, and there were abuses of grace to the point of saying, hey, if I'm free, I can do whatever I want. And Paul's going to address that later. So here you have kind of the OG meets grace abuse group and we follow Paul. But then you have, I follow Paulus. You know, his teaching style was probably a little bit different. We get bits and pieces through Acts and later in this letter uh, where he was, he was maybe more consistent with like the, the wisdom theology, maybe a deeper exegete, maybe a style or approach just kind of got you into the word a little bit more. And, and people were drawn in by that. And they were, they were nourished by it. They were built up in the faith. But they're finding that his style, his personality, his approach was such a draw. And I said, we're, we're with Apollos. Like this is our group that we're, we're with. It's what makes us who we are. Or I follow Cephas, who's Peter. Another name for Peter. You know, Peter is kind of, pull the pieces together throughout the New Testament. And you can imagine that there was a group that was a, a little bit tighter on, on the things you're to do as a follower of Jesus. What do you adopt and transfer from the old covenant? How do you make sense of those things? I and mean, that's part of Peter's journey. See that in Galatians. Uh, where perhaps this was the group that was, was kind of tempted towards self-righteousness. So like, hey, you know, we, we do the things the right kind of way. You know, we're the right kind of mature Christians to kind of carry ourselves and do the right things and, and meet those expectations. But then you have this last group. I follow Christ. I follow Christ, which you're like, what, doesn't everybody follow Jesus, but they kind of have just their favorites? It's like, no, 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 we're, 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 we're somehow the elite group that has Jesus all to ourselves. So you can imagine that, that this group, especially as you work through the rest of the letter in 1 Corinthians, that the types of spiritual gifts that they had, the ways in which they experienced God speak to them and the, the communion they experienced with him, the intimacy, and how their gifts would, would come out to bear, it created this kind of spiritual elitism that's like, well, sure, you've got Apollos and Cephas, whatever. Like, we've got Jesus. Like, we've got Jesus on our team. He's our captain. Um, all y'all are, are kind of, you know, you're, you're some sort of subset. And there was also probably this, this kind of anti-establishment, anti-institutional, like, hey, who needs the organized church anyway? We've got me and Jesus plus a few friends. Like, we're doing our thing. Like, why would we need to be in something that's, that's more structured or organized? So you, you can see how these different ways of thinking, they're still around. We still have our ways of doing it. We still have our ways of finding our, our favorite podcasts to listen to, our favorite pastor or preacher, favorite ministry or, or favorite area. What makes me the, the right kind of human? What, what gives me the status that says th this, is, this is it? This is the tribe that I need to be a part of. This is the camp that really makes me who I am. Well, Paul responds to it, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Which is a little bit of a plan words because in one sense, he, he was the one who was divided, who was broken open, who had his life hanging upon a tree where his blood poured out. He, he was carved up so that we could be united. And now the church is carving up the body of Christ. Paul's saying, you've got, it, you've got it backwards. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's like, sure, I've got, I've got a ministry, I preach the gospel, like God used me in different ways, but, but you weren't baptized into my name. I certainly was not crucified for you. Jesus was. The, the whole point is to come before Jesus. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christmas and Gaius so that no one may say that you're baptized in my name. And then you can imagine like the scribe, the amanuensis on the side being like, hey, Paul, I was there. Um, you also baptized the household of Stephanus. Remember that? Like there's a lot of people there. He's like, oh, yeah. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. He's like, all right, let's move on. Like the point is not who I baptized. The point is I've been called to come bring this message that takes us to Jesus, not about whose tribe you're with, who, who kind of, which pastor you're most connected to, or who, who kind of knows you, who, who do you have the end with? Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He, Paul has 
he has no issue with, with eloquent speech. I mean, the guy's a, a great communicator. A lot of our New Testament um, was written by Paul. He was probably a phenomenal preacher. His issue is not with eloquent communication or having genuine wisdom. It's when we, we put our stock in those things. Like what makes us the right kind of people is like we're, we're with the right kind of communicator. Like the way that ministry is, is done, I'm, I'm attached to that. And we have to, to be aware in our own souls that we don't have some sort of purely emotive or psychological conversion toward Christ. That it's like, oh, we, we, we feel certain things when certain people communicate. We kind of get, you know, we have the emotional experience. Emotions are a wonderful part of even worship of God. God has given those to us. But if we, if, we, if we get caught up in how someone communicates or how they do things or a certain person we like to listen to and, and we miss the substance of the message, then Paul says we've functionally, we've operatively emptied the cross of its power because that is the means by which we are saved, not by eloquence, not by good communication, not by a certain ministry that does things in a certain way. We're saved by Jesus through the cross. So Paul says, I've come to proclaim this gospel to you, this good news. And I think it's important for us to, to distinguish good news from good advice. Because we're, we have no shortage of good advice in our, in our world. You mentioned podcasts. I mean, there's so many different ways we can kind of learn to be the right kind of human and do this differently and do that and accumulate over here and get a successful life. We have plenty of avenues of, of advice given to us. What sets the message of the cross apart is that it's good news rather than advice. I appreciate what a um, preacher from the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, has to say to distinguish this. Advice is counsel about something to do, and it hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. News is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. Now think this out. Here is a king, and he goes into a battle against an invading army to defend his land. If the king defeats the invading army, he sends back to the capital city messengers, a very happy envoy. He sends back good newsers with his report. They come back and they say, it's been defeated. It's all been done. Therefore, respond with joy and now go about your lives. Conduct your lives in this peace which has been achieved for you. But if the invading army breaks through... The king sends back military advisors and says, swordsmen over here and marksmen over here and horsemen over here. We're going to have to fight for our lives. Every other religion sends military advisors to people. Every other religion says, you know, if you want, to, if you want your salvation, you're going to have to fight for your life. Every other religion is sending advice saying, here are the rites, here are the rituals, and here are the laws and regulations. Earthen workers over here, marksmen over here, fight for your life. We send heralds. We send messengers, not military advisors. Isn't that clarifying? Paul is saying, I have come and proclaimed good news to you. Not so that you can get a list of things to go start doing to be good enough and be acceptable and be received and gain status around other people. No, I gave you good, the, the message of the good news of the cross that has freed you from those expectations. You no longer have to labor to be loved. You no longer have to, to fight to be received. You, you are loved because of what God in Christ has done for you. And then he dives in further, starting in verse 18. And this is the second question that I want us to, to wrestle with. Are you shaped more by the culture or by the cross? Look at me in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, quoting Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is, it, it's difficult to capture just how foolish worshiping a God who came and died in a, such a shameful slave-type way as on a cross would be to this culture. You've got the, the Jews who are longing for a Savior. They're longing for a Messiah. They're longing for this righteous king to come and deliver their people. But they're like, well, yeah, but God is powerful. He's going to come in might. He's going to come in strength. He's going to come in such a way that we, it's undeniable. This is the mighty God who has come to save us. How could we serve a God who, who, who would come and, and die? Well, we actually know from, from the, the Scriptures that one who hangs upon a tree is accursed. How, how would this be God's powerful means of salvation? Then you've got the broader culture, the, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, who are, have built their whole society around you know, what can you achieve? What can you achieve intellectually? But what status can you get? What power do you have in that community? Um, how, how well born are you? Like, where do you rank within this broader culture? Like, you know, we, we put our rebels and our slaves up on a, on a cross to, to hang in shame. So people can walk by and say, never again shall you challenge the empire. Never again shall you push against this authority. Know your place. That, that, that's foolishness. That's folly. Why, why would we go that direction? One author, Christopher Watkin, puts it this way. No amount of highfalutin rhetoric could hope to convey to a contemporary readership the outrageousness to ancient ears of the idea of Christ crucified. The concept would be as oxymoronic as a boiling ice cube or a successful catastrophe. So to claim for the cross anything like wisdom or power must have struck Corinthian ears as sarcastic and absurd. The Jews desire a direct demonstration of God's supernatural, miraculous power. Greeks, for their part, seek wisdom. Paul particularly has in mind rhetorical impressiveness and skill in debating. Those signs and wisdom are the particular desires of first century Greek and Jewish cultures. They're also emblematic of human aspirations more broadly. Signs and power belong to the active life the life of getting things done and changing the world, whereas wisdom belongs to the contemplative life, the life of understanding and critique. The cross subversively fulfills both the active and contemplative ideal. God delights in flipping our expectations on their head. You take the, the cultural ideals of that context of this is wisdom, this is power, this is what it looks like, and God says, no, no those are avenues of trying to, to save yourself, to achieve enough, to, to be enough, to, to invest your own life, to say, I'm, I'm, I've got it, and I stack up compared to other people in the right kind of way. And God comes in and says, no, I'm, I'm going to come as a, as a humble, lowly servant one who, who eventually lays down his life in the most shameful way culturally imaginable so that I can put on full display, he says, that you cannot, you cannot labor enough to save yourself. You must set all of those different, different ways of trying to be enough to set those aside and come humbly, broken, honest, repentant, pleading with him and saying, I, I need your life, I need your work, I need your cross to save me. This image shows how they would have thought about those who worship a God who dies on a cross. Now, this is a, it's kind of like late second, early third century graffiti um, there on the left. So you got somebody you know, etched in a, a picture over there. And they, they pulled out all the, the background stone images and um, put the, the full image on the right side. And it says in Greek, Alexamenos worships his God. This was to make fun of this guy named Alex for worshiping a God who would hang in such a, a shameful way upon a cross and die, representing by putting a, a donkey's head upon Jesus and say, this is, this is idiotic. It, it almost doesn't even you know, afford the, the mention of how foolish this is because how, how can you build a life of, of power, of recognition, of status, of intelligence, of, of being approved of? How can you build those things when when this is the one that you look to, like this is the one. What is it for Denver? How, how is the, the cross weakness and foolishness for us? Well, I, think, I think it's worth us considering what, what kind of drives so much of our, of our Denver culture. 
You know, one, uh, one author, Charles Taylor, he will, he will talk about how every culture and subculture has kind of like your archetype. Like this is the ideal. It doesn't mean it's an actual individual, but it's kind of in this vicinity. This is what everyone kind of knows, like you're supposed to be working toward. You feel shame as you're away from that and kind of how do you stack up in comparison to it. And in each city, each culture, every area that we're in, you can go on down the line with different subcultures, it's a little bit different. So we're all going to experience this differently. But I think for, for Denver in particular, call this the Denver trifecta, this is something of what the Denver ideal, what the kind of pressure, the cultural pressure that we often feel revolves around this, physique, experiences, and relative success. Physique, now th- this is the pressure that, that so many of us feel, that, that, that culturally we, we can absorb. We, we've got to curate an image to, to, to offer the world. So we've got to find the right diet. We've got to find the right exercise program. We need to, uh, to kind of polish ourselves up. You know, what's our style? What's our vibe? Does it fit? Does it, does it fit with those people? How does, it, how does it measure up with the next person, this group of people? Am I acceptable over here? Um, you know, how, do, people, do people like me because of how I look, how I present myself? You know, even down to, like, do you do the cold plunge or no? I'm mean, like, is this, is this helpful, net positive or not? I don't know. Um, I've never tried it by design, but I've, I guess, tried it in my college years. Um, so physique, we feel this pressure to, to, to present ourselves in a certain kind of way. But not only that, we need to accumulate the right kinds of experiences, to have a, a steady flow of just exciting, stimulating opportunities in front of us. And, and we live in this wonderful city. We live in this wonderful context where we're able to receive the good gifts of God. I mean, so many of these things, any of these it's, it's when the good gifts that God has given to us, they become elevated beyond their station. They, they begin to replace God in our f- affection and our pursuits and where we, we define our lives. That they begin to become kind of soul-deteriorating realities for us. But there's such a temptation to get pulled in by different experiences. And then success, rel- relative success. I say that because I think in different cultures, success kind of takes on a different flavor. Here, it's kind of like, well, I need to make like enough money and I want like a decent enough of a job and promotion and pathway for my career. And, and I want like a living situation that doesn't take all my money, but it's still like where I want to be and kind of my friend group. And I, I want to like succeed in the right kinds of ways, but it's not, it's not so dominant because I, I have to have room for the other stuff too. Now, you, you, you ask people, I mean, this is not, this is not necessarily bad, but so often, you know, why'd you move to Denver? It's, you, you kind of trace the, the different reasons. It, it's a lifestyle move. It's like, we believe that the Denver, living here, close to the mountains, the people we know, the opportunities in front of us, will give us a certain kind of, of lifestyle that we find attractive. And, and many of those things are, are attractive, and they're not bad, and God gives good gifts through them. But when that becomes the defining ideal for us, the cross becomes foolish, and it becomes weak in our eyes. Because how is a Savior who came and laid down his life, who gave up his rights, who gave up his privilege, who gave up what was in front of him and said, I'm, I'm here to sacrifice, I'm here to serve, I'm here to give my life for the life of another. That looks like foolishness and it looks like weakness when this is our, our driving motivators. Or maybe summed up in a different way. Often the Denver persona, I think, can, can kind of sneak into what we think we need to be. It's like, oh, if I could just present that I'm, I'm smart, I'm put together, and I'm in control. I'm smart, I can kind of hang conversation, I know enough of what's going on, I'm not going to say something that's going to make me look silly. Um, I, I kind of know, and I'm, I'm put together, I have that curated image that can be received well by other people, and they, they like me, and I'm in control. You know, I can control my calendar and my recreation and kind of work environment. If I need to change jobs, totally fine. Where does this find its way into our thinking as followers of Jesus such that it squeezes out the true power and the true wisdom of the cross of Jesus? What we, we fail to see as beautiful and compelling, as inviting, as, as the very means to our life, the cross of Christ. And that is what Paul is calling out here. Because there in verse 25, the foolishness of God, the so-called foolishness of God, that that the culture would see as foolishness and that that so often we can get tricked into and kind of absorb the values that we begin to think it's foolish. 
That's actually wiser than whatever humanity can come up with. And the so-called weakness of God is actually stronger than any version of that strength that we can start to project or absorb from the broader culture. So are we shaped more by the culture or by the cross? Appreciate what author Anthony Thistleton says about it. The world's wisdom is marked by structural self-centeredness, status-seeking, and supposed self-sufficiency. Well, that's true in any culture. It just gets manifested in different ways. If everything rests on human cleverness, sophistication, or achievement, the cross of Christ no longer functions as that which subverts and cuts across all human distinctions of race, class, gender, and status to make room for divine grace alone as sheer, unconditional gift. So here's the connection between the first two sections. There is a way to, to bring other other ideals, other versions of the good life, other pursuits beyond Jesus through the cross as the, the touchstone, like what makes us who we are, that, that kind of gives us value and worth. That when we begin doing that, we begin dividing from other groups of people who don't kind of measure up in the same kind of way or are not going to help us to achieve that version of the good life that we want. So maybe it's not as direct for us. Maybe we don't feel in the same way that we've got our different kind of subgroups of I follow so-and-so and I follow that, that person over there. But how, how has this cultural idolatry found its way into the people of God? We begin carving ourselves up, carving up, dividing the body of Christ for the sake of our pursuits that are outside of Jesus. To say, this is more important. This is what defines me. This is what I must pursue. And so we begin to look around. And so often we can see that our community right in front of us, we're like, I... It's just the people that make me feel comfortable. It's just the people that kind of agree with me and we want to do the same kinds of things. And that is on the backside carving up the body of Christ, not, not living into the unity amidst diversity that the cross of Jesus has actually purchased for us, calls us into and demands for the people of God. So where, where, where are we pulled in by this allure of the cultural idolatry that we think we need to gain status through all these different things and pursuits? And all the while we have our Lord and Savior, who, who laid down all of that and said, come to me and find your life. You no longer have to earn it. And this leads us to the third question. Do you boast in yourself or in Christ Jesus? Look at me in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But he's, he's kind of saying, hey, you, hey, church in Corinth, you're not all that impressive. <laughs> like, you, you, maybe you're, like you're trying, you're trying to play the culture's game, but, but you actually don't have a lot. You, you're not doing that. Some of you are. Some of you are doing okay. Chloe was probably one of those. She's like, you know, this thriving businesswoman. There are other people in the community. It's like, yeah, you, you kind of have the stuff. And, you know, may you steward it well. But for the most part, we're just not that impressive. And, and that's actually a good thing because it's in those places of feeling our weakness, feeling our need, feeling our, our desperation, feeling our brokenness and our sin. In those places, that's where we're able to receive the message of grace through the cross that much more clearly. He goes on, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The reason God delights so much in undermining our attempts to, to build a life for ourselves, to be enough, to achieve, to, to seek status on our own, is because he knows life and joy are never found in those. Eventually, it's, it's exposed for what it is. Eventually, it begins to dissolve. It begins to fade away. It's, it, it's, it does not satisfy. It demands more and more and gives less and less. And so he calls us into the only life that is true life, the one that is found through the cross of Jesus, 
the one that is found in him emptying himself, that is named as shameful and foolish and weak in the eyes of the world, but is true wisdom and true power. From, our, from the commentary we're using, Andrew Wilson, he says this, By dying the death of a slave and then rising again, Jesus brought honor to the most apparently shameful people in society. He confounded the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent while elevating humility above pride and sacrifice above violence. Like a pebble thrown into a pond, the cross sent ripples across the world, which gradually renewed the moral landscape, dignifying what was despised and putting worldly power in its place. Jesus, in his crucifixion, flipped the world's expectations on their head because what he was doing was flipping the world right side up again. Glory through sacrifice. We find it power, independence. We come before what seems to be foolish in trusting in the word of God when all indicators should point us away from it. And there we find true wisdom. Or another way to tell the story through a children's book. My, my sons were so confused at the 9 a.m. when they saw this on my, my Bible. They are like, what? Are you, are you teaching from this? I'm like, well, kind of. Um, the book is called The Tallest of Smalls. Um, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of, we're not going to read the whole thing, but give a little, little backstory. Little Ollie that we're going to see here in a minute, he lived in a, a small village, little town, that the way that they, they passed out kind of status and approval was by giving a pair of stilts to, to somebody they, they deemed was, was worth it. So every day, I think it was 5 o'clock, same time, each day they would gather around in the town square, and the people with the power, the people who, who I guess could, could tell who was, who was worth something and who wasn't, they had all the stilts. And they would look around and kind of assess and say, okay, you're, you get stilts today, you don't, you don't, you do, you do, and kind of go on down the line. And then they, that person could wear the stilts for the rest of the day, and they could kind of be up above everybody else and kind of look down upon. And, and Ollie never measured up. He never got the stilts. His clothes weren't right. He didn't look the right part. He didn't know what to say. He, just, he was not the kind of guy who got the stilts until one day. Something shifted in the, the minds of the people that passed him out, and he got the stilts. And he found himself up high, walking around, and that's where we, we pick up our story. There he is, up high. With pigeons and buzzards and all flying things, they plopped on his shoulders and rested their wings while he struggled to walk and maintain some balance. Do I have this skill? Do I have this talent? I skipped this page, but the answer is no, he doesn't. <laughs> he, he, he crashes to the ground, and everybody's like yelling underneath, and he hits the ground. When the gang of the cool and the jilt of all jilts didn't offer to help, they just took his stilts. And there all he sat, he might not have moved, might have sat there and cried, except for the touch that he felt by his side. So gentle, so caring, that he looked up to see. Jesus smiled down and say, Ollie, come walk with me. Keep your feet on the ground. Refuse to be stilted. Choose low over high. Leave the system tip-tilted. You're precious, my Ollie, not too short or too small. I made you remember. You are mine after all. My boys will often look at me when I'm reading a book and just like weeping, like, Dad, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know. It's just, it's so powerful. What are the stilts that we're all aching for? And who are we looking to to pass those out to us? Where are we somehow convinced along the way that I really need that approval? I really need that status. I really, to be okay, to, to, to be the right kind of human, to measure up, to, to be, that's what I need. I need this kind of acceptance. I need to achieve this degree of success or recognition or accomplishment. This is where I need to be, and then I'm going to be enough. And maybe we can see through the eyes of Ollie how once you're up there, it's not all that great. Then you've got to maintain it. And birds are probably like landing on you and pooping on you anyway. It's probably not, not all that great. But then you come crashing down. Are, are we able to receive the wisdom of those humble, broken moments? 
where the, the approaches to life that we absorb from the broader culture, they just, they just don't really pan out. We're just exhausted. We're frustrated. It's not, not really working. Or when it works for a while, we're still exhausted and we're frustrated. We're anxious. We're fearful. We, we fear what we're going to lose. We're angry. We're short. What if in following the wisdom that has been given to us in Jesus to come to him, to receive him through the cross, to be able to set aside and be free of all of these attempts to measure up and to be enough. This is what's put on offer by Jesus. Now, Tim Keller, uh, longtime pastor in, in New York City, uh, passed away last year. He, he will talk about where he saw the most renewal in his midst, you know, kind of the different movements and church leadership that he was a part of. Where he saw the most renewal was where it, it wasn't so much um, the, the, it was the people who had been convinced they were Christians for so long, but at some point along the way, they heard the gospel and realized, I've never actually come face to face with Jesus. I've, I've, I've more absorbed the, the values of a different system, and, I, and Jesus was kind of this add-on that, that worked well, and I kind of liked aspects of it. He goes, but when people began to come face to face with the crucified and risen Lord and say, my life for his... I have nothing to offer him. All of my attempts have fallen short. I, I'm going to finally get honest and, and own the fact that I am broken, I am sinful, I am needy, there is darkness in my heart, I cannot save myself, and I'm going to come before Jesus. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to give my life to him. I'm going to ask him to save me and to take me to the Father. He said when that began to happen, this refreshing renewal began to just spill over into different spaces. But the reality is of the gospel, it is simple enough to be communicated through a children's book, and it is rich and profound and deep enough to be explored for eternity, always to experience more, always to approach God through the gospel again and again and again. And so where are you today? Where are you in relationship to Jesus, particularly in the cross of Christ? Where has your heart grown cold and, and found the message and who Jesus is to, to just be kind of off and it's not going to kind of help me achieve my goals and it's, that just seems foolish? Where do you need to, to come again to the God who has come to us in the cross of Jesus Christ? Because he beckons us, he invites us, he welcomes us again and again and again and he receives us. As we, we get honest before him in his presence He's faithful to receive and to save. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your tenderness toward us. Now that when you see our own need, our own weakness, our own inability, you don't come down hard on us. You don't shame or, or, or pass off disappointment, but you actually move toward us in such a tender love that we're, we're compelled by this grace. We're, we're brought in by this mercy. And so I ask for, for each of us that the, the wisdom, the power, the beauty, just how profound your cross is, that, that it would become alive for us, maybe for the first time, maybe just based on the season that where we've been, need it afresh, need to be awakened to you again. But help us to see you and to receive you. I just thank you. I thank you that you, you don't turn from us in our broken state. You don't turn from us in our sin. But that is precisely the moment that you enter in with the most, with the most love, with the most humility, with the most welcome, and may you give us hearts and minds that are receptive to you, even now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to step into a time of communion. Now, this is what we come back to each week. And if you're serving communion, if you would, start to make your way forward. Uh, we need the grace of Jesus. We need it to bring us into the family of God, and we need it every day and every moment thereafter. And so that the beautiful rhythm of coming back to him as the people of God to take communion it is a, it's a, it's more than just a, a remembrance. It becomes visceral for us. We're able to take the piece of the bread, to dip it in the wine, to, to, to feel, to taste, to smell, 
to, to be reminded again to commemorate the work of Jesus on the cross and how that's what brings us into life with the Father and to receive his affection, his delight. Um, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. You're just like, I'm not sure. Like, I'm wrestling with the claims of Christianity or I'm kind of new to this whole thing. Like, we're so grateful you're here. Like, we, we long for, and I believe in many ways we are a community where people can, can ask the hard questions of the Bible and Jesus and Christianity and be in different places in your spirituality. Um, our, our longing is that you would experience salvation in Jesus, that you would come to him and, and ask him to save you, which, which he does. As we come before him, he receives us, and he makes us righteous, and he brings us to the Father. But until that's the case for you, we would ask that you don't partake in communion because this is a, a proclamation of neediness before Jesus and that he is the one who meets that need. Uh, but here in a little bit, we will throw a couple prayers up on the screen that would invite you to, to pray, to wrestle through, or allow that to be kind of a start uh, for your own prayers, or, or to process with someone that you're, you're connected with or that you came with. Um, any of us would be glad to, to do that. Uh, but for those who are, are in Christ, this is the meal to come back again, to be reminded, to be brought near to Jesus, and to know his love for us. Now, before we do that, we're going to recite a prayer together. So if you would, stand up with me. Uh, we're going to read this prayer as a church um, all throughout the First Corinthians series. Read this with me. Lord, as we come to your table, we acknowledge that without you, we are a mess. Thank you for inviting us as we are and for your faithful love toward us. Open our eyes to the ways that we have been shaped more by our culture than by Christ. Forgive us and free us through the power of your crucifixion and transform us by your spirit through the power of your resurrection that we might be united as your holy people to reflect your love and glory to the world. So for all those who are in Christ, come eat, drink, and celebrate again God's love for you. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.